Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, it looks like we're heading for an election September 20th. Is it a sure thing for the Prime Minister? Why are people hesitant to get a vaccination? Canada is evacuating its embassy in Afghanistan. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Where's Kurt? Kurt? Uh Where is he? Where is he? Nobody mean. Well, here, read this. Just read it. Okay. All right. You read it. Read it. Sure. You're up, Will. Go. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Uh It's Friday the 13th. I have securely stapled my mask to my helmet for the trip to Port Dover. It's the (laughs) Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Where is he? Is he on the can? Well, I don't know. He's... He's MIA. He's missing in action. Maybe he's looking for a shirt. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Woolerskin, uh, back at the station, keeping us on the air and, uh, filling in wherever he's asked to. Uh, uh, yeah, there we go. Tim, how are you? Scott, I am okay. How are you? I'm doing fine. Tim Powers with us, uh, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, and someone we love ta- uh, talking politics with. And uh, what better reason to bring Tim back for a, a second time this week than to talk about uh, a federal election on Sunday? We talked about this uh, when we chatted earlier in the week. Reuters obviously confirming it. The rest of the media has jumped on. Uh, do you think at this point, Tim, all of a sudden this is just trial balloons and they could say, well, no, nothing to see here and not do this on Sunday? God, it's like saying you're going to be on the air and then you don't show up. I mean, people will be heartbreak, heartbroken. They'll be crushed. I mean, they'll probably like Will because Will's a fine man. But uh, no, this is happening. This, 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 this is on. Yeah, I, that said, uh, unless suddenly the number were, we got some crazy numbers for the weekend. You know, like a thousand people now have the have had uh, tested positive for COVID in Ontario and a similar number in BC. But no, I, th- I think this is the, the horse has already got its head out the barn door. So will the voter ask what is, what is the purpose of holding a federal election? I don't know if they, some will. Yeah, for sure. They will. Look, we, we did an advocates poll this week that ended on Wednesday and kind of got at this question, which is if, if the prime minister calls it, do you think we need it? And the gist of it was this, that 83% of Canadians said they could live with the fact that there's an election being called. 38% of people said for sure they're okay with it. Another 44 said, yeah, it's all right. So the, the prime minister is going to get some critique uh, from the opposition leaders, from physicians and others who say this shouldn't be happening now. Are you surprised it is unfolding the way that it is? Because when we chatted earlier at different uh, levels of this pandemic, remember at one point after the first wave, there was a window opening there that we thought he might jump and and, and call for an election. But back then it was nobody wanted to trigger it. Uh, he wanted an election. The numbers were hot, but nobody wanted to be the one that flipped the switch. Are you surprised that we've ended up with this where he's just going to go to the governor general's office and, 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 and ask for it or, or, or say what's happening uh, as opposed to uh, triggering one with, with the opposition and, and, and just putting, up, putting something out there that they just simply could not support? Then, of, um, course, it's, then of course, this question moves while well, they both kind of called it. They, you know, both sides called this. Yeah, they couldn't agree on something. 
Yeah, you, yeah. Listen, this toxic argument that he's going to try and make is nonsense. That, that, that will be nonsensical, right? Uh, there's lots of proof to demonstrate that Parliament, yes, you've had your partisan flare-ups, but my goodness, they've passed, as they like to say, the government, you know, the largest aid package since the Second World War, right? Um, and there's been such harmony, for the most part, between the federal government and the provinces. So toxic isn't going to work, but the Prime Minister's not likely to run up and say, hey, I want this election because I can get a, my, a majority right now. So they'll concoct some reason. Honestly, when people start voting and or start paying attention to the election, as I say, I don't think the the rationale for it will matter with as many voters. Now, the one example where you can say that wasn't true is perhaps the case, two cases that were cited I've heard in the last two days. One, you well know, David Peterson in Ontario years ago when you and I were just in short pants. And um, Jim, the late Jim Prentice in Alberta when he wanted to go for a majority. Um, could get bad for Trudeau if if numbers go up and in COVID, and then maybe people will start to say, as they did in Newfoundland, where our premier had a huge lead, hey, why are we doing this now? This just seems stupid. Um, so uh, getting back to my earlier point about not wanting to trigger it, uh, who ha- uh, whoever, uh, well, I guess it's obviously the prime minister, who has triggered the election will not be relevant. It, it doesn't usually tend to be. You'll get the criticism around the, de- the, the early days, but... Um, yeah, I, I mean, the opposition parties will use their framing. Mr. Singh was in my province of Newfoundland, Labrador yesterday. He was calling it a selfish in- election or a self-interested election. And that will work with some of the progressive voters that he's trying to court. But uh, Mr. O'Toole will say it's unnecessary. But you, you only you only can win and capture attention for so long whining about something happening when it's actually happening. If you're still complaining on the... 35th day that we shouldn't be having an election and you haven't offered any other propositions, you're probably not going to do that well. Uh, you talked about having a uh, an election during a pandemic. From what we've heard from health officials, that's not, you know, shouldn't be a problem. And let's be honest, the majority of Canadians are now uh, fully vaccinated. Um, so do you think safety or the, the COVID-19 a- angle is really a factor here? Or do you think it's more, um, we're just not sure why we're going here? Probably a little bit, of we're not sure. You know, the broad public, we're probably not sure why we're going. But look, Scott, we've done the work for him, right? For the last two months, we've been talking about an election coming, election yeah. coming. So when it comes, people are like, oh, yeah, I thought this thing was going to happen. Not realizing necessarily, oh, it could have, we could have waited. Oh, well, I've been hearing about it for two months, so it's going to happen now. Do you think safety is a concern of anyone? I mean, I, again, yeah, I'm sure if it all, will be. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it will be. Um, uh, he, he, that's why the, the chief electoral officer, Mr. Perot, has already come out and said, "You know what? I'm a bit worried here." Or, sorry, not. He's not said worried. He said, "There's um, m- my mistake." There, he has said, "We had fifty thousand mail-in ballots last time. We're probably going to have five million this time, and that may be the safety, the safety angle that people take." He also made the point that if there are as many as um, ballots is that that are cast via mail we might know the results as we traditionally do on the night of the election as was the case in newfoundland we might have to wait uh for a few days uh to to get those results are you anticipating a big increase in mail-in ballots oh yeah i think so uh, look they've, regardless of the pandemic uh, i think they've become a more accepted tool by people and I think this go around people who particularly are more cautious, perhaps more seniors, which will be interesting because 
the demograph, the cohorts and seniors um, can be very influential in election campaigns. And there will be others, immunocompromised people, um, perhaps families with young kids. You know, I, I think for a lot of reasons, people will choose the convenience and choose the safety of mail-in ballots. What is the process for Canadians to mail in? Do we know yet? I, uh, boy, you're, you're asking the wrong person. You may get one of your get get uh, that uh, crack superstar will to check on yeah. uh, on the election website. There would be a pre-existing elections Canada website. There would be a pre-existing process from last time. You probably have to. You, well, as you did in Newfoundland, you have to tell them that you want one first, uh, and then they will send it to you. And then I assume in that documentation they will tell you when it needs to be backed by or postmarked by uh, and the like. Uh, who is Justin Trudeau's biggest concern? Himself, probably, um, in, in some ways, to start, right? He doesn't want to make the mistakes or have the the, the embarrassments that he had uh, come to the forefront in 2019 pop up again, the whole blackface mess. He, he you know, almost gave a very weak opponent like Andrew Scheer a minority government. Uh, so he's got to watch his own yes. mistakes, own goals, as they say in soccer. I think after that, Mr. Singh, how can Mr. Singh, who in our polling and other polls is seen as the most... Uh, popular federal leader, can he cut support away from Justin Trudeau? So they'll, they'll be watching their left a little bit. I think they're wise enough not to take Mr. O'Toole for granted. I mean, O'Toole was an underdog in the conservative leadership race. His polling numbers haven't been great at the moment. You have to anticipate that he will have a better performance than Andrew Scheer did. And even with a bad performance, Andrew Scheer kept Justin Trudeau to, um, to a minority. So in that order, Trudeau's own game, uh, Singh and then O'Toole. We remember in the last election that there was all kinds of chatter, especially in the polls, about the popularity of the Greens and the popularity popularity of the NDP, and then the NDP ended up losing seats. Um, so could, is the same thing going to happen here, or uh, do now enough people know about Jugmeet Singh that, that they'll give him a second look? I think he's, he's certainly better known. He's still well-liked. Um, the question is, what kind of game can he deliver, right? And where can he pick up seats? So my region, again, they have one seat. When they, Mr. Layton and Mr. Mulcair were leading the NDP, they had, I think, uh, five, ten seats in Atlantic Canada. So he's got to find ways to pick up seats in places where the NDP have had support, but he has a better opportunity to do that. The block's also a wild card, right, Scott? I mean, we're Anglo commentators. It's hard to know when you're not in Quebec where they will go. They still appear to be strong um, and solid. Quebecers seem to like to have the option of their own regional voice there in Parliament. Is Trudeau able to chip away at them? Are the Conservatives able to chip away at them? And even the NDP uh, do that. When the NDP became opposition, the collapse of the bloc benefited them. So uh, that's another thing to look for. Uh, You brought up the photos, the blackface photos of the last campaign. (laughs) Are there more surprises out there? Can we expect uh, anything from that? God, who knows? (laughs) I mean... You do have to think it's a bit like when you campaigned against Stephen Harper, right? This is Justin Trudeau's third election. He has been put under the microscope extensively by media organizations, by political parties. 
if they had stuff before, you would have thought they would have used it. So I guess we should always be prepared for a surprise. But the longer ones in office, it is usually the mistakes they have made in office or things like lab scam, which is how we got first talking, that uh, uh, that caused them consternation. I don't know. Is there some more stuff that's come on the we scandal or is that thing gone quiet? So, yeah, it's hard to imagine what we haven't heard about Justin Trudeau yet. Uh, on that note, uh, Jugmeet Singh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. have announced that they are expecting a child. Uh, does that play into this? Does that help the image in any way? And, and let's be honest, there's been lots of rumors floating around about the Prime Minister's marriage and the status of that. Yeah, it's not, so not, on, on the Prime Minister's marriage and all of that, those, look, Stephen Harper and Mrs. Harper dealt with all of those rumors. Those, that seems to be the new thing if you're a Prime Minister. And I, you know, I think, again, that sort of stuff is baked in. Uh, people's personal lives, unless there's something extremely outlandish when they're going up through allegedly machinations that other human beings go through, I think there's some built-in uh, understanding of that. Mr. Singh having, um, uh, having a baby, congratulations to him and his partner, of course, first. Uh, maybe that you know helps appeal to some some orange Tories, if there are such things still out there, that uh, like the family aspect and dimension of of all of that. But uh, I, I, I'm you know it, it humanizes him further. It, it allows him, and I heard him make this argument yesterday, saying he starts to look through the world at the as the eyes of a father, and you know those of us who are fathers, you, me, and millions of others. And parents recognize, yeah, hey, I get that now. That may change the way you're thinking. One of the knocks, for example, on Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has always been, he, you know, not 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 a not a family person. Doesn't have his own family at the moment. Maybe he can't be as empathetic. So who knows? Could help. Can the NDP translate all of this chatter that seems to be uh, with them before an election into actual results? How concerned are you after this election we'll end up with the exact same thing as we have, and that being a liberal minority? I'd say that's a, probably the safest bet right now, Scott. I mean, and the NDP will consider that a win, right? I mean, Mr. Singh is probably not under the illusion that he is going to win the election outright, uh, or even win a minority, but the the NDP are you know they're persistent and dogged. They like to chip away. They they believe you know they will take credit for some of the things Mr. Trudeau has done. Child care. They'll push for more for pharmacare. So depends what you consider uh, consider a win. So that would be be a win because then hard to imagine Mr. Trudeau stays on much longer if he goes to the polls and only gets a minority after all of that. The Chancellor is going to step away sometime in the next couple of years anyway. So. That'll be a win for them, uh, you know. To, so, Singh uh, and for the Conservatives, probably a win if if it's a minority for Trudeau. Though I doubt Mr. O'Toole will have the luxury of Mr. Singh of uh, sticking around if if he can't unseed Mr. Trudeau. Tim Powers with us, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, talking about a looming election, which is apparently going to be called on Sunday for September twentieth. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Bye. All right, let's bring in Peter Wollstonecroft, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo, and talk about uh, the upcoming elections. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
Uh, thank you very much. I am up and around, and that's all I ask. <laughs> Especially at, that, at, at this stage of a global pandemic. Peter, are you surprised? We were talking about this, you know, even after the first wave, and it seemed that the prime minister wanted an election but didn't want to call it, uh, and everybody was wondering who was going to actually trigger an election. Are you surprised we're going this route as opposed to having the opposition actually trigger an election? And then you could say, well, it's not me, it's them. They didn't buy into what we're doing here. Well, I am surprised in the sense that Trudeau will be asked, uh, presumably on Sunday, uh, announcement day, uh, why is this election being called? Is it in the interests of Canada or the interests of the Liberal Party? So we'll see how he dances around that question and however it's put to him. And, uh, and that, in some ways, will set the tone, because if he's pushed back on his, on his heels, then they will have some difficulty uh, explaining down the road why this is all happening. And I think a lot of people are are skeptical. Uh, No, it has to be said, very rarely are people walking around going, I wish we had an election, I wish we had an election. But, uh, you know, everybody knows, at least uh, those people who pay attention to themselves and vaccinations and so on, I don't know about the unvaccinated people, but we're going to be having a fourth wave. It's going to be very troubling. Um, and and all of that is happening while we were going through an election, even in an abbreviated form, uh, like the shortest possible uh, number of days. So, yeah, big question. Why is this happening, uh, Mr. Prime Minister? And you made it happen. Nobody else made you do it. Uh, any chance of the, and many people have mentioned what you just did, Peter, in, in regard to the Governor General. Is there any chance that the Governor General might say no? I, I would doubt it. I would yeah. doubt it very, very much. Uh, and... Uh, in fact, I have to say, I hope she doesn't say no, uh, because that would create a, a considerable constitutional uh, conundrum crisis. So she's going to say yes, and we'll be off to an election. And uh, Trudeau will set the tone. The opposition parties will be jumping on any uh, mistake or miswording that he may put forward. And then we'll have to see where we are. And I, I think you're, you're, we should all understand that this is a very uncertain prospect. Once the, once an election is called, once the writ is dropped, we we the whole the whole tone changes. The, the liberals or any government party would be going along on autopilot, and now everybody's on an equal footing in a sense because the question will be of each of the parties and each of the leaders, which one should I vote for? And a lot of people are are liberals or conservatives already, but there will be a considerable fraction of the population that is is available. Uh, to vote for other parties uh, or one of the parties. And so the result is highly uncertain. And what we should remember, you know, we've got five parties uh, in in the House, and plus we have the People's Party of Canada, Max Bernier uh, on the outside. So we have six players. And it's just not a, a binary system. We just don't have liberals versus conservatives or conservatives versus, versus liberals. So we have, uh, let's we'll, we'll say, six parties in a first-past-the-post system uh, a change of one or two percentage points can produce a considerable uh, loss or gain of seats. And that's what we'll have to see what happens in the next five weeks. How much does the pandemic play into this? Uh, obviously, the majority of, the, of Canadians are now fully vaccinated. Uh, things are starting to open up. Uh, obviously, as you said, Peter, there, there's the, the, the threat of the fourth wave and what it is going to bring to us. 
Um, I'm of the mind that I, I think this can be safely done simply because, uh, you know, we're opening up, we're doing other things in the vaccination rate. However, is that a concern for the general public or will the big question be why, just why are we doing this? Well, I think I think for a while that question will be there. Uh, and then I think we, we, we may have, there's always events. And, and maybe what if we have a big uh, increase in outbreaks and cases? Uh, we now have Americans coming into Canada. Are we certain that they're free of COVID-19? Well, I'm not. Um, and so who knows what's going to happen? Um, in my community, we have a church that opened its doors on the 1st of August. There's now 25 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and more are expected. This is out of one gathering where people were not masked, were not social distancing, and were singing. Well, that's just a recipe for disaster, and uh, God didn't help them. So there's 25 cases and counting. So there may be things. Who, who knows what China's going to do? What, hap- what would happen in Canada if we had an execution in, in, in China? Mm. Uh, what what happens if if the Canadian embassy gets overrun and our uh, embassy staff is not protected from the Taliban? All these kinds of things happen, and there's always the famous phrase, "the unknown unknowns." Who would have guessed four years ago that uh, uh, Justin Trudeau would have a blackface scandal? Who knows what's going to happen in the five weeks? Is this a slam dunk for the Liberals? Because obviously well, they're ahead in the, the polls. Question. They're doing this for the reason, right? Yeah. You know, if you stand back and look at the long history of Canada's elections, uh, particularly in what I call the modern era, so for your your listeners, that means since 1921, uh, that uh, the, the question is, will we have a national sweep where a party has a message and a leader that appeals to people from one coast to the north to the to the west coast to the northern coast, and they win an overwhelming number of seats? in the House of Commons. I don't think that's going to happen. I see nothing in the cards. It's not 1958, it's not 1968, it's not 1984. So what we're going to have is uh, a series of local regional elections, and we have various competitions going on um, and across the country. The Conservatives are ahead here, behind there. Liberals are ahead here, behind there. And the NDP has some strongholds. Will they have some kind of breakthrough, get up to 22%? They start winning seats that they uh, don't, uh, do not hold now. Or will they hold their own? Uh, and all of these are, are, are not national battles. These are regional, provincial battles. In my area, uh, where the region, we have five seats. They're all held by the Liberals. The Liberals cannot afford to lose any of those seats. The Conservatives must win at least one or two of those seats if they have any hope of forming even a minority government. It's those kinds of, uh, and same in your area, you know, uh, which which uh, of those seats will change hands? Uh, and and the big picture for me, beyond the way I've just framed it, is what happens in Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. Basically, a hundred seats, none of them held by the Conservatives. The Conservatives have to find some way to win those seats and suburban seats if they have any hope of uh, defeating the Liberals. Liberals have a tremendous advantage. They have four seats in PEI. They have six, probably seven seats in, in Newfoundland. That's 11 seats, uh, and there's only 600,000 voters there. And my area has 600,000 600 citizens, 600, citizens. We have 600,000 citizens where we live, where I live, five seats. So the Liberals have an advantage, and then they have some chances in the northern seats. Conservatives have to do well where they have not done well recently. Uh, and they have a problem because uh, Mr. O'Toole is not 
well known and not uh, not much appreciated. On the other hand, he has a chance to make his mark um, uh, at the beginning of the election, and we'll see how he goes, what his messaging is, how he handles himself under pressure. And that's true for all the leaders. Uh, the You were talking about uh, the challenges for the opposition. Uh, O'Toole not really resonating. Nobody knows him at this point. NDP last election and the Greens, everybody was, was chatting about them and how good they were going to do, and then the NDP ended up losing. Uh, I think almost half their seats. Yes, it is. Uh, so this time out, uh, is this going to be different for Jagmeet Singh? Now that people know him, he's not the new guy on the block anymore. No, he's not the new guy. And and uh, uh, being a political scientist rather than a, just a citizen, I would say he's acquitted himself well. He's made his case well. He looks very comfortable uh, wherever he is, uh, speaking to to the media, and, and, and that's where this election will be fought out, will be fought through the, the media screens, whatever they may be. Uh, and and so he, and we'll have some de- debates, and he quits himself well there. Uh, the question is, uh, to what extent uh, um, does the NDP resonate in various parts of the country? For example, I, I, I hard, find it very difficult to imagine they'll do well in, in, uh, in Quebec, for example. Uh, various parts of Ontario, they have some pockets of strength, but uh, outside of those, I don't see them doing well. But then they may have opportunities in Western Canada, and, then, and I read some accounts that the Conservatives have some big problems in the in the Prairie provinces. In BC, is a real uh, toss-up because you have three parties. Forget the Greens, uh, but the Liberals, Conservatives, the NDP are all very competitive. And go back to my earlier point: a switch of two or three percentage points can mean a big loss of seats or a big gain of seats. So they, he has opportunities, and I will say this, I'm a little surprised, because uh, I knew they had big financial problems coming out of the last uh, two elections. They've cleared the decks, and they've got money. They've got more money now than they had last time. I don't think that we're going to have a Jack Layton moment uh, uh, mm. with Jagmeet Singh, but I suspect to have a better night than he uh, this time around than he had last time. Peter Wollstonecroft has been with us, Associate Professor, University of Waterloo, uh, commenting on an upcoming election, which we should find out about on Sunday. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, thanks, Scott. Live it up. (laughs) We're trying. And the commentary is coming up. New sources reported yesterday that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will visit the Governor General on Sunday and call an election for September 20th, 36 days later. Many have questioned, what is the purpose of Justin Trudeau calling an election now? Who is asking for an election other than him? Some have questioned an election while we are still in the midst of a global pandemic and are being told to keep our guard up. Personally, I don't think safety will be an issue during an election because the vast majority of Canadians are already fully vaccinated. To me, the bigger question is, why are we doing this? What is in it for Canada? Or Canadians. Canadians are most happy when all parties are working together, which is what has been happening during this pandemic with most key legislation passing. So the real question for Canadians is not whether it is safe to have an election, but what is the real reason for having an election? What is in it for Canadians and Canada? What do we get? What is in it for the Prime Minister? Hopefully, his majority, I'm guessing, So is this election to benefit Canadians or Justin Trudeau? I'm Scott Thompson. 
Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman. Alyssa PR, she is a PR and pop culture expert talking about the upcoming election. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, Sean. I hope you are, too. Alyssa, I wanted to bring you on for this segment to ask the specific question, how does the Prime Minister sell this election? What is, specifically, what is the purpose of this election? We remember when there was the windows opening up to the first wave and such, um, they wanted an election, the Liberals, but they didn't want to trigger it. They were trying to get the opposition to trigger it, and that obviously didn't happen. Now, uh, there is no opposition trigger. The Prime Minister is just going to the Governor-General to ask for an election. How does he sell this? How does he sell the purpose of this? Well, the way he sells it to the purpose of Canadians is so that that they feel that he can have uh, a clear mandate for the next four years. You know, it's interesting. I think what's also interesting to talk about is, you know, what's the narrative that he's going to sell to the Canadian people? I mean, there's been a lot of chatter all over the dial about, you know, can we really have an election in a fourth wave of a pandemic? And I think that that's pretty much off the table because there's been by-elections, provincial elections, yeah. that people ha- are used to voting during a pandemic. And yes, we are in a fourth wave, but the numbers are nowhere as large as they used mm-hmm. to be um, a year ago. So that's the first thing. And I heard an interesting story yesterday, Scott. And if you recall, after the Second World War, Winston Churchill, a great statesman who led his country by leadership through the war, lost the federal, his federal election right after World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was, I, I was surprised to remember that fact. And one of the reasons he lost is that he reminded Britons too much of the war and all those mm. negative things that are associated with it. So, you know, right now, Canadians are thinking about Justin Trudeau and his performance during the pandemic. But what I think is going to be key in his narrative is, not only did I take care of you through the pandemic, but here's where we see hope. And here's where we see future for the next four years. Many have commented how they like to see different uh, stripes of government uh, working together. We've certainly seen that. Um, the Prime Minister has said he can't get things passed when exactly the opposite has, passed, the, uh, has happened. The only thing that really didn't pass was that giant omnibus bill at the beginning, which was going to give him uh, sweeping powers. Um, so at the end of the day, do you, will people say, do we need this now? And again, I agree with you on the safety issue. I don't think safety is an issue anymore. The majority of us are now vaccinated. Uh, but again, we still have bigger fish to fry, it would seem. Uh, do you think Canadians are going to say, why are we doing this now? It only no, seems to be, it, it, is, is this benefiting Canadians or is it benefiting the prime minister? benefiting the prime minister i'm sure that their narrative will be full of why this is benefiting you but you know what the the job of any political party when they're in power they have one job scott and that's to stay in power and i don't care if it's you know whether you're political you know provincial politics federal politics municipal politics i mean you see it all over the states right now you know all people are making political decisions around the pandemic with an eye on their future and their eye on their staying power and right now the liberals see a very clear pathway that they are leading in enough of the important ridings across the country. You, know, you don't have to win the whole country. You just really need to win the ridings. So they see a clear pathway of a comfortable enough margin that they could get into a majority uh, position. 
All right, to change gears here, we're finally, it looks like, having the debate uh, about whether there should be uh, mandatory vaccination for non-essential services like in bars and such. We were talking about this yesterday. The federal government has just announced that uh, they're going to mandate vaccines for all uh, federal employees. Uh, we're finally having this discussion as opposed to a card and in, in, in the security aspect of all of this. Uh, should uh, vaccines be made mandatory for non-essential settings? Yes, they should be. And I'm really tired of having this 20% of people who are not getting a vaccine. Yes, there are some structural barriers for some people who cannot get a vaccine. Maybe it's because of uh, they can't get time off. Maybe they have a medical condition. But I, I think that that's more the, the exception than the rule. And when you think about the places where Canadians like to go, we like to go to bars, we like to go to restaurants, we like to go to concert venues. Well, why shouldn't the people there be kept safe? So why should they be at the mercy of those who are unvaccinated? So, you know, I think you know that I'm pretty hard line on this, and I'm, I'm tired of listening to sort of these waffling positions. And I think that at some point, you have to put the hammer down and say, yes, we require mandatory vaccinations because we will continue to experience different waves maybe not as severe of the uh, of the of covid and its variants many of which you know we, we haven't even experienced yet if we don't get to a larger percentage of mass vaccination and that's just science that's just the fact we seem to be coming at this through the back door with the whole vaccine passport thing and as the discussions we'd had earlier in the week about security and such. Do you think we're finally having uh, the adult discussions that you just said that, that we should be deciding whether this will be mandatory for non-essential or what the plan is moving forward? Do you think we're finally realizing that is the discussion here? Yes, and I think one of the reasons, Scott, is that there are major organizations that are coming out and saying that we need mandatory vaccination. So, for example, the um, Canadian Medical Association and the Canadian Nurses Association came out last week and said, you know, mandatory vaccination for all healthcare workers from physicians yeah. on down throughout to, you know, um, PSWs. We had the OMA come out yesterday and say, you know, recommend mandatory vaccinations for teachers. So what does that say? So the, the government, this is a great pulse check for the government to see if, gee, if we said mandatory vaccinations, what would Canadians think? So when you watch these other organizations, those that are very credible, those that have the expertise come out with such statements and they check the, um, you know, how people feel about it. They read the comments, they, you know, on websites, they, they look at the tone and the tenor of the articles. And they go, you know what, I think we have a clear pathway. People generally, uh, more than generally, support this. So therefore, maybe the path is clear to not just sort of pussyfoot around vaccine passports, but also to make more sweeping regulations. Alyssa Freeman with us, Alyssa PR, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thank you so much for the time. Have yourself a great weekend. Enjoy camp. <laughs> Oh, yes, that's right. I'm on my way up to Killarney, Ontario, and it's beautiful up here. <laughs> All right. You enjoy your weekend. Thanks so much, Alyssa. Be well. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. In regard to vaccinations, uh, all this discussion now is about the hesitant. Those are uh, those of you who those out there that have not been vaccinated as of yet. And of course, we all know in Ontario, the numbers are up over 80 percent for the first dose, well up over 70 percent for uh, the second dose. So uh, we are talking about an extreme minor- minority, about 20 percent, 15 to 20 percent of the population at this point that uh, is hesitant in some way. And it's funny, and we see this in the United States, or we saw this in the United States, and, and, and that is this was separated by politics simply because there was one party that said, yeah, we got to get this under control, and then a, a president at the time that said it's all a hoax. So if you're on one side of the political aisle, you felt this way. If you're on the other side of the political aisle, uh, you felt that way. There's been lots of people who have tried to draw that comparison in Canada, but it's very tough to do that because every single political party from the left to the right is all telling you to get vaccinated. So it's not a political issue. Some have tried to stereotype it among uh, different ethnic groups, religions, uh, economic status. And what we're finding out is it's right across the board. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're on the left and the right, you're male or female, you're this or that. Um, there's fear, there's hesitancy in every single one of those categories. Let's bring in Rupin Sioni, Chief Revenue Officer with Envir- Environics Analytics, and is with us now. Rupin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Yes, I am. So break... Time. Break this down for us, then, because, because again, we, we tend to stereotype those that are hesitant. Is that the case? Uh, does this really cross all, all of those stereotypes? Well, I mean, to some extent, yes. There's a little bit of everybody, there's, there's a little bit of hesitancy everywhere, um, as, 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 as I would certainly expect to see. But you do see some concentrations, um, in, in different populations that are, that are a bit higher. And, and if, uh, you know, our, our, our public health um, officials uh, and others are trying to encourage people who are not totally confident in vaccines to, to help build their confidence and go out and get vaccinated. Uh, it's, it's really important to understand, um, you know, who and why and where you're, you're going to have um, the greatest success in, in the efforts that you make um, at, uh, at convincing people to get the, get the shots. So who who are who is not uh, who is not convinced this is the way to go? Who are the hesitant? Well, so there's a there's a couple of things here that, that are interesting. So first of all, um, you know, I ran some of the some of the data that that we've got. Uh, basically, just to give a little sense of what this data is, we've we've taken some survey data on vaccine intentions um, from from a company that we at Enbronics Analytics work with called Cattle. And they they survey vaccine intentions, and then we also took another survey that uh, that, that uses what's known as a cognitive, um, sorry, a behavioral economics framework that has defined some cognitive factors that predict um, why people are vaccine confident or hesitant, depending on which way you want to you want to look at it. And and that survey was done through through another partner of ours called Asking Canadians. So what we what we what we do there is we we take the data and then. Rather than just having high-level survey data that covers the whole country um, or the whole province, we then have a number of modeling techniques that we specialize in in, in, in estimating it down to 800,000 six-digit postal codes across the country, and that's based on demographics. So what that allows us to do is to really look at, you know, locally, what are we seeing? So what's going on in Hamilton? So when we actually look at the, the Hamilton um, 
census metropolitan area as Seth can define it. So that covers Burlington and, and Dundas and, you know, the whole kind of mm-hmm. what's considered the commuter shed of Hamilton. Um, actually, the hesitancy in Hamilton is below average for the country, which is a good thing. So people are more confident in, in getting, getting vaccines. Um, you know, the, the, the no group, so the people who are like hard no, I'm not getting vaccinated, is about 10% smaller proportionately than, than you'd expect across the country. So it's a little smaller. And the unsures, the people who, you know, I think most efforts would be focused on are maybe convincible if you get the right information in front of them, is about 5% smaller. So it's a little, little better than average. But when you actually start breaking down the region, um, you know, the city of Hamilton has lower confidence levels than, you know, across the Bay in Burlington. So that's important to, to recognize, um, you know, in terms of where you would, you know, you would concentrate efforts and trying to convince the unsure. And then when you, you know, even break that down further within the city, um, sort of the downtown and the eastern part of east of downtown Hamilton um, has higher levels of hesitancy, and then parts of the central the central mountain. If I have my terminology correct, I don't I don't know Hamilton extremely nope, well. you're perfect. There, you know, a number of times. Okay, good. All right. Um, so those are the, those are the pockets where you see you know higher levels of of hesitancy. Um, you know, in the population. Um, now you know when we talk about you know beyond that, if we start looking at at um, you know the the, the the demographics and the personas of the populations that are more more hesitant. Um, you know, one of the things that we you know that we actually see when we when we take a look at some other data that 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 we produce, which uh, basically takes every postal code in the country and it it takes the demographic and what we call the urbanity characteristics. So, do you live in a suburb? Do you live in downtown? Do you live in the country? Um, and, and creates a typology of, of Canadians' lifestyles. So there's 67 of them. They're, they're, they're sort of micro-segments that really allow us to look in detail at, you know, what kinds of populations are, are where anywhere in the country. So when we cross-reference the hesitancy stats against these lifestyle types that we call PRISM, what that allows us to do is to see those patterns quite, quite easily. So we can, you know, we can quickly see who's more hesitant, who's less hesitant, and then, you know, break that down into some groups. So, so one thing that we see um, in, in Hamilton specifically is that there's, there's a definite affluence divide. So, um, you know, to your point earlier, yeah, there, there's a bit of hesitancy everywhere, mm-hmm. um, but there is far less hesitancy among the most affluent populations right. in, in Hamilton, um, like to the degree of, you know, a third to a half, um, uh, you know, as much hesitancy in, in the affluent. Yeah. The two... The two main groups in Hamilton that, that, that really, I think, comprise most of the, the hesitant population, and each of these groups is about 20% of the population overall, and then, you know, within that, um, there would be that hesitant component that, you know, I believe the, the you know, if the, if the efforts to get people vaccinated are focused on these two main groups, you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. I mean, if there's lots of, there's lots of bandwidth, and, you know, in speaking with health officials, there is not. If there's lots of, if there, in an ideal world, if there were lots of bandwidth, you'd be trying to convince everybody to get vaccinated everywhere all the time. But if you really want to focus on, on certain populations, understanding those populations is really important. How they think, what are their concerns about the vaccine, how convincible might they be. And then, you know, if you're trying to get, 
media in front of them, you want to make sure you're, you're reaching them, you know, with what they're doing and what they're listening to and what they're watching. So, so the first group that is about 20% of, of, you know, of the, of the core group that is, is hesitant is, is um, what I've called sort of modest income singles and couples that live in the city. So they're in the, you know, the older parts mm-hmm. of Hamilton. Um, there's an above average component of that group that actually respond a hard no, I'm not getting vaccinated. Yeah. Um, and there's a similarly sized, so they're probably not convincible, right? Um, but there's a similarly sized group that says that they're unsure. So that indicates that there's a, there's a chunk, uh, you know, again, roughly 20% of that group that represents 20% of the population um, that, that would be, um, that, that might be convincible. So that be, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Finish up. No, go ahead. So then the second, the second group um, that, that we, that we've identified when we look at Hamilton's uh, numbers is there's some pockets of areas that have, have lots of visible minorities in them. So, you know, both newcomer populations like newcomers to Canada, as well as some middle-class suburbs that would have, um, you know, more established immigrants or second generation um, now, this group is interesting because they, they are, they're a lot less likely to have a hard no. So unlike that first group of, of, you know, modest, lower income singles and couples, this group isn't so likely to say, no, I'm not getting vaccinated. They, they're above average on the unsure. So they're, mm. they're, they're, they're just sitting on the fence and, and they, you know, there's a component of them that's sitting on the fence and they are, you know, probably convincible if you convince them in the right way, if you get people that they trust. Uh, perhaps from their communities uh, that whose opinion that they respect, you might be able to convince some of them anyway to go and get vaccinated. So, Rupin, uh, when this all first started and before we even had a vaccine way back in the first wave, many were talking about flu shots and such and how the take up was about 40 percent. And and many experts were hoping that if we even got 60 to 65 percent uh, uptake on this, it would be amazing. Of course, we're sitting at 80. Uh, and as you've described, there's different levels of hesitancy from, yeah, maybe to uh, the extreme anti-vaxxers and such. So let's just assume we're sitting at an 80 percent where I guess we're a bit over that now. But 80 uh, percent of Canadian or sorry, Ontarians who are eligible have had their first dose. When you divide up the hesitancy, uh, uh the group that is hesitant and 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 obviously account for those uh, that that are perhaps may change their mind as to those that won't how high do you think we can go with this so if we're sitting and let's just say we got an 80 percent number now um can we get to 85 is it realistic to get to 90 percent when you're taking into account all of those categories yeah yeah no of course i mean you know i'm I am not an expert on the logistics of getting yeah. people vaccinated, but, but I mean, the numbers that I'm seeing here, that the unsure group is much larger than the no group. Okay. And, and, and I yeah. look forward to seeing like, we're, we're waiting for some, um, some updated data on this hesitancy that's coming that will give us more indications that through the summer, what we're seeing. So the data I'm looking at right now are uh, back from, from about three months ago, um, the numbers have shrunk. So the hesitancy has shrunk, which is a fantastic thing. Uh, but the unsure number is 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 a fair bit bigger than the no number. So, and I would expect that to carry on. So, so I think absolutely we should be able to get there. Like, you know, we're pretty close already. So, 
So, um, you know, getting from from the low 80s to 85 doesn't seem like that much of a stretch. And I mean, it's, it's, it, from what I'm seeing in the numbers, we should be able to convince. That means convincing a small proportion of the unsures to go and get vaccinated. Well, obviously, we're going to always have that category that medically can't for some reason. Then we're always going to obviously going to have the anti-vaxxers who doesn't matter what happens or what you say, uh, they're not going to be involved. But are those that are not in those categories, are they looking for answers or are they taking a wait and see approach? Are they sitting on their hands or are they actively looking to solve their problem? Are there or are there questions? You know, that I don't know. I don't have I don't have, you know, um, information on that specifically. What I do have, though, is, and I think I think the the sort of behavioral economics approach, which is really about nudging behavior, like nudging how, how yeah. you nudge people to 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 do to do the right thing or to do something. Um, what what um, our partner BU Works identified was four different factors, basically these these cognitive factors that that they found drive the hesitancy. So one is. Um, believing in your like having more confidence in your personal beliefs over empirical evidence right so do you do you take scientific evidence but if i don't yeah. agree with it personally i'm going to go with my personal beliefs so that's one that's one driver so if somebody has that in their kind of thinking in their makeup um they're going to be they, they tend to be more hesitant about vaccines second thing is concerns about how risky vaccines are so are they safe have they been tested enough and we've heard a lot about that um, there's a third thing, the tendency to believe in conspiracy theories, um, also is a, is a predictor of vaccine hesitancy. Again, probably not very surprising. And then the fourth thing is, is like a little science test. So they actually tested people on a bunch of scientific questions on basic science and people who got more of those questions wrong tended to be more vaccine hesitant. So hmm. don't think you can, you can give everybody a degree in science, but with the other three items, if, if, you know, if you're able to kind of understand which of the confluence of those things um, is more important in in Hamilton, let's say, in these two different populations that I've identified, you, could, you can maybe go after the things that are going to be convincing more than others to get those people to, vac- to get vaccinated. So one of the, you know, one, these factors have an, a bunch of questions under them, a bunch of, you know, individual survey questions that they kind of probe on. And one of the things that came up in Hamilton was that, um, and it and it comes under um, it comes under the um, the conspiracy theories is I believe that boosting my immune system is enough to fight COVID. All I need is good diet, health, and and vitamins. Mm-hmm. So you know this 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 kind of stuff comes from you know mis bad bad content out there and you know in the world uh, that misinforms people and that that's all that's required. And that is one thing. That was the one thing that, that, that Hamiltonians, uh, you know, on mass actually scored a little bit above the national average on, saying that, oh, that's all I really need to combat COVID. So in this case, perhaps that is something to go after. And I would bet that in some of these specific populations that have higher levels of hesitancy, that would score even more strongly. So it gives us a bit more of a, a roadmap to say, what are the things that I need to talk about to different populations so that I can be effective? 
On that note, uh, federal government has announced that uh, the vaccine will be mandatory for all federal employees. There's lots of chatter in Ontario. It seems we were talking about the documentation and the security of it, uh, putting the cart before the horse almost, as opposed to actually asking the question, uh, should uh, vaccines be made mandatory for non-essential settings like restaurants, gyms, uh, that sort of thing. Um, do you think this or, or this sort of uh, approach increases vaccination rates? Does it? Uh, and again, I'm speculating a bit here, but I, I would think that if you are giving more people reasons to get vaccinated, I mean, in this yeah. case, by limiting their activities, by making it more inconvenient to go about their day-to-day lives, the people who are a little more on the fence are going to get tipped over and say, you know what? I'm just going to get it. I want to go to the gym or I, I'm going to yeah. get it because I want to fly and see my, my relatives somewhere. I, I think um, I, I think that uh, that stands to reason. Uh, do you see any surprises coming in the future? Uh, again, I think a lot were surprised to see such a great uptick for Canadians on the vaccine. A lot bought in. Most are buying in. Well, you know, I'm not surprised. I think Canadians are are um, we are an incredibly sensible lot, and I so frankly, you know, earlier <laughs> this is just in the realm of my opinion. I as when there was all the drama about we aren't getting our vaccines as fast as the Americans, what went through my mind was, yeah, but you know what? We may take a few weeks longer to get there, but we'll actually probably close to get the job done, and the Americans may not ever get the job done. Um, Imagine if we had stated at the start at the same time, though, where we'd be. Right. Exactly. Uh, Rupin Sioni with us, Chief Revenue Officer, Environics Analytics. Fascinating uh, look into the hesitant. And uh, some we can convince, some we may never. Uh, Rupin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Randall Denley's column in the National Post and in the Ottawa Citizen. Ford sticks with the experts on mandatory vaccines and passports. He isn't taking the easy path to popularity. And let's bring Randall in now. Uh, Randall, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. No problem, Scott. Uh, you know, I found this kind of frustrating, Randall, in the sense that we're kind of going in the back door and not really telling people or asking people if we need these before or, or what the rule is around them before we actually start stamping out passports. What is your take on all of this? I, I'm totally against it, Scott. I mean, my first question is, what do we think it's going to accomplish? Now, to me, this is, you know, the majority of people who are vaccinated say, well, I just want to live my life normally without having to worry about these other people. So let's just shuffle them out of my life. Yeah, the passport thing, that'll keep them from going places that I want to go to. One of the things they don't think about is that, yeah, you want to go out and have a beer and a pop or buy a shirt, you're going to have to show your papers, show your phone, do whatever you have to do. I mean, is that the kind of society we want to live in? We haven't been that restricted even up until now. And that's the big point. And that's show proof. And that's the point now. Are we going to change this now, Randall? Are we always are we we going to say now the restaurant that you could get into last week? Now it's mandatory. You're going to need uh, proof of vaccine to get in. Uh, Is the public going to accept that? Especially as the uh, vaccination rates go higher. People, people in Ontario, I think, have a tendency to want to be told what to do by government to begin with. Mm-hmm. They spent the last year and a half being told what to do by government. So now they want government to say, make these other people do something. We're we're really into coercion now, I think, in, in this country where if you and I think something ought to be done, we want government to be our agent to force them to do it. 
So we're we're disgusted at these people. They're not they're not vaccinated. So let's treat them as second class citizens. They need to get in someplace and buy uh, clothes for their kids for school. Tough luck. Can't do it. It's a very harsh, unfriendly kind of an approach, I think. And I think, what is it really going to accomplish? Is it going to get any more people vaccinated? Maybe some. I mean, to me, what uh, people are doing here in, in Ottawa, Ottawa Public Health, is the absolute right way to go about it. They've identified the neighborhoods where vaccination rates are really low, and in some of them it's down in the low 30s. So you send public health people into those neighborhoods to try to persuade people to get vaccinated. And when they talk to people, they find that, well, why aren't you doing it? And it's not because people are a bunch of, you know, redneck anti-vaxxers. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people who aren't vaccinated are racialized people. They're immigrants. There's language issues, child care issues. Where do I go to get it issues? Maybe I don't have Internet. And a lot of people come from countries where government tells them to do things that aren't good for them. So they're suspicious. It's a tough nut to crack, but I don't think just punishing them is going to be useful in any way. And people continue to get vaccinated. About 50,000 a day in Ontario are getting vaccinated now. Far fewer than before, but it's what you'd expect when most people are already vaccinated. So to me, the landscape here for Ford is that, you know, finally he's putting his foot down and saying, look, I don't want to impose any more restrictions that don't really produce a result. I mean, he's done a lot of that in the last year and a half. And I'm really happy to see him saying, what is, what's it going to accomplish? I'm not going to do it. I mean, the easiest thing that people are demanding right now is, well, what about the teachers, the healthcare workers? Force them all to get vaccinated. So your next question would be, well, how many aren't vaccinated now? Well, well nobody knows. who knows? I mean, if you're a healthcare worker or a teacher, you're not vaccinated, you've got some personal challenges, I think, but how much safety are we going to provide by forcing these other people to get vaccinated? Now, of course, you know, today we see the federal government's jumped on this with every federal employee. You want to take a train to Quebec in a provincial, well, you got to be vaccinated. Plane, got to be vaccinated. I mean, that's election-driven, I think. But we haven't adjusted our thinking, or at least some of this happened. But, okay, the fourth wave, scary as can be, isn't it, Scott? The fourth wave is coming. So, okay, yeah. what's different from the third wave? Most people are vaccinated. Yeah. Okay, that's a big deal. But the people who are you know, crying for more government action and protection just sort of brush that to one side. Well, that doesn't matter. The fourth wave, we got to do something. And the usual people are setting themselves up to say, you know, cucumbers become concerning. I told you so. I warned you. Yeah. I mean, we've seen this movie quite a few times before. Is there too much comparison to the United States here, uh, where there's, you know, just over 50% of the population uh, is even fully vaccinated? And, you know, I remember at the beginning of all of this, uh, health officials were, if we could get over 60% vaccinated, that would be considered successful. Here we are in Ontario with over 80% with the first dose. Um, how much more can we get out of this? There, There's a couple of percent there that are anti-vaxxers you're never going to convince. Uh, there's a few percentage there who medically can't do it. Uh, then there might be 10% left that you could maybe convince. So 
How much farther can we go beyond 80% with this? Probably not too much. There was some interesting research from uh, Abacus Data and McLean's a couple of days ago, and they looked at this, and they figured there's probably about 14% of people who are going to be hard to get. Half of them are persuadable, and half of them aren't. But they aren't the people you'd expect, either. The average, most typical person in that group is a 42-year-old woman who would vote liberal. So, you know, they're not the stereotype you think, but we need to be, I think, always realistic on this. And realistic is that not everybody is going to have the vaccine. You know, we're over 80% first dose. Reasonable to assume that if you got one dose, you're going to get two. So we'll be over 80% somewhere. That's a good number. If we went to 85, it's going to make a big difference, a little bit, probably not a lot. At some point, we just have to say, look, we're in pretty good shape. We need to lead a normal life. We can't always be overreacting, anticipating maybe something bad was going to happen. We better do something bad right now to prevent it. It's the kind of thinking that's got us into the hole that we're in now. And it's hard to break the thought pattern for people, I think, because they've heard nothing but this from government and media for the last year and a half. So cases are going up. Uh Oh, the government did the right thing, I thought, this week on that. And they're trying to you know, shift the emphasis on cases and move it to hospitalizations. Yeah. Because if someone tests positive, it's not necessarily a big deal. It never has been. They could be asymptomatic. They could be mildly sick. If they're not really ill, that's their problem, but it's not a big issue for society. So, you know, we're seeing, for example, some people who are double vaccinated. They're sick. How sick are they? Not much. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. We don't need to worry so much about cases, though. I have to say, you know, people in our business are still wired that way. That is, they've written so many stories about exponential growth, cases spiking. Mm. They're just looking at cases. So we're talking about should vaccination be mandatory in non-essential settings, uh, like restaurants, gyms, uh, stores, what have you. Uh, what about when it comes to education? Uh, education, obviously, those under 12 cannot be vaccinated. Obviously, that's going to be a red flag. Uh, and also, obviously, with health care and, and long-term care, you would have just assumed. So how do we address those people? Yeah, so I think in education, you know, we've always been told, and I think correctly, that the, the threat to kids in school is the amount of community transmission. It's not so much what happens to them in school, it's what happens to them outside of school. So it's certainly reasonable to assume that teachers are at least as vaccinated as everybody else. So moving teachers to a higher level of vaccination, is that really going to protect anybody particularly? I don't know. It is not crystal clear as you go to these slightly higher numbers. Well, how much really are we gaining? Like how much safer are we? You know, I think we're in a position right now where we can say we're quite safe. And I don't know that going to great lengths to get that little extra bit makes a lot of difference. But this is one of the things we've been bad at, I think, throughout the pandemic is is understanding risk. We're at risk, so-called, every day when you get up. We're in a society where the you know, weather person on TV and radio will say there's a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon. It's like, what's the risk? It could be a thunderstorm. We always hear about people being at risk. You know, of course there's a risk from COVID. There's a bigger risk from a whole bunch of other things. And when you look 
back at COVID with all that's been done over the last year and a half as the disease with a 2% mortality rate. That's pretty low. But the way we've addressed it, you think it was the bubonic plague. If you're exposed to it, well, you'll be dead. It's never been that, and it's much less that now. So I just think we need to adopt that as our perspective. On long-term care, the vast majority of them are vaccinated. Uh, for the other ones who aren't vaccinated, they have to be tested once a week, and they have so-called education sessions to try to persuade them to be. The, the challenge partly, though, is if you say, where does it go next? Someone says, well, I'm not getting vaccinated. Okay, you're a great teacher. We're firing you. Yeah. Or uh, you're a personal support worker or a nurse that we really need, but you won't get vaccinated. We're firing you. How are we ahead of the game? You know, it's not it's not so easy, and that's the big question I would have about the Trudeau thing, too. All public servants must be vaccinated. What happens for the ones who won't? You're going to fire them? I don't think people think these things through enough. You know, it sounds popular on the day yeah, you say it. I know. What's it going to mean it, in reality? I agree 100%. So with the feds now coming out and announcing today that all federal employees must be vaccinated, um, will the provinces now be pressured to do the same with their employees? Well, I think they've already been pressured. I mean, Ford's been pretty good at uh, putting off that pressure. I mean, to me, the uh, the sign of a bad policy is that Justin Trudeau endorses it. So I would definitely go with that on this one. But I mean, it's, it's kind of funny too. I'm you know sitting here in Ottawa, where most federal public servants work. Almost all of them are still working from home, even now. Yeah. So, okay, they'll be fully vaccinated. They work in their houses. Like, what is the gain of this? And this is, the, to me, the missing question throughout the pandemic. Somebody says, here's some new restriction. Okay, but what result will it produce? What positive result? So is that many have said that if government doesn't make these sort of uh, uh, processes, make these sort of decisions, that now it gets left up to the employer or it gets left up to the merchant or the retailer or the restaurateur to make this call. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I would look at it exactly the opposite way. If an employer wants to mandate that for their employees, that's apparently something they can do. But although it has practical problems, but the you know to get back to your your vaccine passport, that is going to be a nightmare for businesses because it's going to be up to them to enforce it. So now you've got to hire, presumably, a security guard to stand at your door and check everybody's documentation. I mean, not only is it a cost, but people anticipate it's going to be a challenge because there's people who are abusive now in stores because I'm not wearing a mask. Too close to people. I don't care. And if you're, you're running some retail, outlet and say, well, what are we going to do about this person? Because it's not like we've got a bouncer on staff. How do we deal yeah. with that person? It's stressful for everybody. So now if you've got to start turning people away at the door, some of them are going to be mad. So I think that's a big new burden on business. You know, this is government decreeing now that in addition to everything else they have to do, all the safety measures, many of which are unnecessary at this point, now you've got to be the COVID police. And even if somebody shows you some COVID documentation, well, how do we know that's not fake? What other documentation do you have to go with that? It just opens the door to a whole other level of responsibility for businesses that they don't want, they don't need, and they're just struggling to survive. And Why you brought up a valid. 
you brought up, brought up a valid point earlier, Randall. It's like people want to be told what to do. They want to, they want the easy out here. And it's amazing how, how much email I got from people saying, well, you know, I don't want to be arguing with people at the door. And it's like, well, how is a vaccine passport, a special card, going to make that discussion at the door any easier? Because there's still going to be someone who doesn't have one, and they're and they're going to be ticked about it. So, yeah. what difference does it make if it comes? They lost it. They forgot yeah. their home. Uh, they don't have a phone. Their phone broke. Something. You know, there's a lot of stories you can think of in ten seconds, right? I don't think I don't see how it's going to solve. I don't think I don't see how it's going to solve any problem. It just it just adds another element to it, another layer. Yes, it's the classic solution looking for a problem to solve, in my opinion. Randall, as always, thank you so much for the time. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've certainly heard in the news uh, what is happening in Afghanistan. Uh, obviously, uh, several weeks ago, the Americans pulling out and things have uh, very quickly deteriorated there in Afghanistan to the point now where uh, we've learned that Afghans uh, who worked for Canadians and their families are currently inside a Canadian compound, hoping to be rescued along with Canadian citizens and those uh, in the embassy where uh, they're preparing to evacuate. Let's bring in Stephen Sademan, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, and is with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you very much, Scott. I am. So give us a bit of an update here. What, uh, what is happening with the Canadian embassy? We're certainly seeing shots in the news where there's smoke coming out and, and reports that they're burning records and such. Uh, what is going on in the Canadian embassy right now? Well, I, I'm not there, so I can't really tell you what's going on inside the embassy. I can tell you that they're preparing for the worst, that, that the, with the sudden uh, takeover of, of uh, Kandahar and Herat, uh, the, the, the Taliban have uh, you know, most of the major cities under their, if not under their control, uh, the, the Afghan government no longer has them under their, its control. And they, the Taliban also have many of the border positions so it's going to be hard for uh, the government of, of Afghanistan to sustain itself when it is essentially surrounded. So how many, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're hearing about uh, an evacuation. How many citizens are we talking about? How many work in the embassy? Any idea? Can you give us some sort of figure? Uh, maybe not a figure, but certainly an idea. Um, I, I don't really have any, any knowledge of what the specific numbers are uh, on, on who's in the embassy. I'm sure the numbers have swollen, uh, given that, the families of those who work in the embassy, uh, the Afghans who work in the embassy, they've probably uh, sought uh, sanctuary there. Um, the key thing is going to be about what, who gets sorted, whether it's just going to be about Canadians uh, being uh, extracted or whether they'll be extracting those that have worked with the Canadians in and near the embassy. And that, that's the, really the big question. Uh, the, the, right now, the numbers are not that much of an issue. It's, it's really what kind of decision rules does the government develop uh, to figure out the king government development about who do they decide to extract. How safe is the embassy at this point? Well, the Taliban is not in Kabul. Uh, that uh, The United States has sent a couple thousand troops uh, to safeguard their embassy, and I'm sure there's uh, discussions going on about how the Americans will help uh, the Canadian Special Forces uh, get to the embassy. The key is, is that uh, Canada does not have the capability on its own to drop some special operations forces into Afghanistan, into Kabul, and, and extract dozens or hundreds of people. They will need help, and I'm sure there's there's 
conversations going on right now between uh, the Canadian liaison that uh, is at Central Command in Tampa, Florida, and the and the Americans. And so I, and this while the, these cities have just fallen very quickly, I don't think Kabul is going to fall over tomorrow. Uh, so I think there is some time to get this stuff worked out. And other embassies dealing with the same issues, doing the same thing. Absolutely, uh, I, th- I think that that. This is a, a big question because the Taliban is not a very trustworthy or, uh, entity, and so they may engage in violence. Uh, you know, the two nightmares in American foreign policy history were the Iran hostage crisis from 1979 to 1980, where Iranian um, students and then elements of the government held, uh, you know, over 50 Americans hostage, uh, you know, for basically two years and held the Carter administration hostage. And then more recently, we've had you know four Americans were killed in Benghazi, which became something a tool for the Republicans to beat up on the Democrats uh, ever since then. So, you know, the United States has seen you know the Biden administration saw that, and everybody's watched the Biden administration, watched watched the Obama administration have, have seen that. So there's going to be a lot of effort by everybody who has uh, you know people in Kabul to try to figure out ways to protect them. Uh, the conversation prior to talking about the embassy uh, being evacuated was translators and their families whose lives were in danger who helped uh, military allies and such. Uh, you alluded to the embassy filling up. Uh, how do they decide who gets out, who doesn't? Is it just a matter of as many as we can uh, before we can't, or is there a decision process there? Up till now, they've had uh, procedures that have involved, you know, going to websites and and and, and showing documents. I, I don't see how that's going to continue. They're, they're going to have to find something that doesn't require a country that does not have great access to the internet to begin with. Uh, I think that they're going to have to come up with other procedures to deal with this. And they're, my guess is that in the end, they'll probably take more than uh, than you know can show documents uh, because it's going to be really hard to sort people. Uh, many say that once the, it gets to the point where you're clearing out embassies, that that certainly does, um, you know, end relations. Uh, how concerned are you? Many have said it's better to have someone there when, you know, uh, and be talking than, than not talking. How how much of a blow is it to to have the embassy out of there, or is there just simply no other choice? Well, the question will ultimately be: Do we bring down the embassy to zero, or to bring it down to a very very small crew who would be there to represent Canada? in a very difficult position. And I don't know if they've made the government Canada has made a decision on, on exactly what level they'll go to, because one can imagine pulling everybody out, but one can also imagine pulling everybody but a skeleton crew who would be there to sort of keep the lights on and do the, re- the representation to the current government and to, if there is a next government, the next government. So we don't really know right now what the end point is of this. Uh, obviously, uh, for, for many years, uh, Allied forces have been trying to train and help out um, uh, Afghan troops and, and officials maintain some sort of defense themselves. As you said, uh, I, I'm not sure many thought that this would happen as quickly as, uh, as it has. It, does this signal the Taliban is back? I mean, is that 20 years for not? Well, those are different questions. The Taliban is certainly back. Um, that that you know they haven't seized the Kabul. We don't know how long it will take if that if that were to happen. Uh, but that's a separate question about you know whether it was all for not because for 20 years uh, there was an effort made to make the Afghanistan a better place and it was a better place for much of that time. 
But the question has always been whether that was sustainable. Yeah. And at this point in time, you know, the Taliban had negotiated an agreement with the Trump administration uh, because the Trump administration wanted to get Afghanistan. And the Biden administration came in and it really couldn't reverse the deal. And Biden was never a huge fan of, of having a long-standing presence in Afghanistan. So the thing is that, you know, for the past few years, it wasn't the Americans who were keeping the Taliban at bay. It was the Afghan National Army. And the big difference has been over the past few weeks uh, that that has not been good enough. Many have looked to the Afghan leadership and uh, and thought that the Afghan army could do more to to hold its own. Uh, could anybody have seen this coming, the speed in which this all happened? Well, the first thing is, is that the Afghan government and Afghan politicians have not really done that great of a job in leading their country. Yeah. Uh, that there was pressure on the Afghan government to give up some terrain in the past, you know, in the past year, so that way they could focus on defending the stuff that they could keep, and and they resisted that. There's been a lot of divisiveness um, within the government in Kabul. Um, every election that we've had in, in Afghanistan has been contested uh, and been considered illegitimate by the loser. And so the the thing we're seeing right now is that. The reason why things are flipping so quickly is that the situation right now is kind of like the situation was with the Taliban in 2000, which was neither the Taliban then nor the Afghan government now is well institutionalized. Uh, and so as, once you start developing doubts about whether they can stick around or not, that tends to foster, you know, feed a, a process, a cascade, where people then go, well, why should I be the ones holding the door while everybody else is running away? And as, as you yeah. know, today there were reports that you know, a big Afghan unit basically surrendered to a much smaller Taliban unit. Why? Because they don't think that it's going to be worthwhile to fight anymore because they, they see the writing on the wall, and, and that's the thing. And, and that's that's where the decision to pull out the American troops has, has some weight. But, again, if the Americans decided to stick around for another year, I don't think the Taliban would have just sat, sat down and gone, well, we're just going to give it up. They would have uh, amped up their activities, that they were already um, bleeding the Afghan army quite uh, uh strongly over the past several years. So it's not as if the Afghan National Army didn't fight, but they definitely suffered from poor leadership. So should the Allies have stayed? Or like you said, is this, you know, you're just delaying the inevitable? Well, it depends on when you, when you say stay. If they stayed from, and from 2014 with 100,000 troops in, in, the, in the country or more than that, that might have made a difference in the long run. But, you know, Canada left three years before that. So it's, it's hard for Canadians to expect everybody else to stick around when it had left. Yeah. Uh, combat and and Kandahar in 2011. So you know th- these days, you know it, if we weren't seeing this now, we'd be seeing this next year. So what's the difference? What do we learn from something like this? Because again, this 20 years, uh, 9/11, all of that. Wh- what do we learn from this? Anything? Well, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. I think one of the things that we've learned from Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Libya is that force has a role. We can break things, but we can't build things with it. And that counterinsurgency is very hard because if a country has a has an insurgency, that's because there's something going wrong with their domestic political situation. And you know, soldiers and tanks and bullets are not very good for reversing those domestic political situations. The problem right now in Afghanistan, one of the things that we learned this morning by Murray Brewster's report, was that the Papazai, which was uh, Karzai, pre- former President Karzai's tribe, has basically been sitting this one out. And if that's the case, then that's really, you know, that speaks volumes about what's really going on in the country. It's not about the military. It's about the political dynamics. And you can't kill your way through 
changing the politics of a place. You can destroy mm-hmm. a, a government, but you can't build one. And I think that's the cardinal lesson of the past 20 years. Wow. And, you know, it's amazing we didn't learn that um, even after the Vietnam War. Um, where does this leave President Biden? Well, that's the interesting thing is that I'm not sure the American people are going to punish Biden for this. Uh, yeah. It depends on how the end game goes in Kabul. If, you know, we're, we're left with another Iran in 1980 or another Benghazi, then I could see it being costly. But if uh, the United States pulls out and the, there's minimal casualties to the diplomatic staff and all the rest, I'm not sure the American people are going to punish him for it because the American people have been tired of this war. Uh, and Biden came into power promising to get out of Afghanistan, just like Trump did. And so I think there's, there's enough support on the left and the right to get out of Afghanistan now. The Republicans are going to accuse Biden of, of failing, but, you know, and, and repeating uh, what they would call Obama's mistakes in Iraq in 2011. But just like uh, Obama inherited a, a, an agreement that Bush negotiated with the Iraqis, uh, Biden is inheriting an agreement that Trump made with the Taliban. And so it's going to be hard for them to, for the Republicans really to, to make this Biden's fault. This is the fault of, of you know, George Bush. If you want to go back all the ways to all the mistakes that were made in 2001, 2002, in terms of becoming focused on, on Iraq, in terms of uh, building a, a constitution for Afghanistan that was uh, entirely poorly designed since it was overly centralized for a country that had never really had a centralized political system. And we could go on and on about the mistakes the Bush administration did, but those kind of, you know, those mistakes in the first couple of years really have tied the hands for everybody ever since then. We remember uh, the history of the Taliban and such with what is happening and their progress. Is this a threat to the free world? How does the rest of the world view this? Well, I think it really depends on the, on the lessons the Taliban have learned. If they, they think that, well, you know, we hosted international terrorism for the year 2001 and, and we only had to leave power for 20 years and we could do this again, I think then, then Afghanistan's a problem. But I think if they learn the lesson that they can be as oppressive as they want to their own people as long as they don't, uh, you know, support international terrorism, and then they may decide not to host an uh, ISIS or, or a new al-Qaeda or whatever. So I... I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, and this is just a guess. We don't really know how the Taliban will, will govern if they get a chance to govern um, until they do. But I don't think that Afghanistan is a huge threat uh, to the West at this point in time. But, again, it requires us monitoring and paying attention to whether they start you know, opening training camps up. And if they start opening training camps up for terrorist groups, then I expect the United States and others to, to act. And they won't necessarily act the way they did in 2001, but they might uh, make things difficult for anybody who decides to turn Afghanistan into a base of operations. So at this point, uh, it's a wait-and-see approach to see what happens when the dust clears, how far they're going to go? Well, uh, you know, there's two things we can do and the things we can't do. The things we can do is we can try to get our people out of Afghanistan. We try to get the people who, help, who helped us get out of Afghanistan. We should try to make that as easy as possible. We should try to make it easy. There are things we can do now to support uh, the international community as it will be dealing with a refugee crisis in the next year or two. So those are things we can do now. But we can't, we can't send... You know, 10,000 Canadian troops or 100,000 American troops or whoever to stop the Taliban and reverse this because nobody wants to do that. Uh, and we are going to have to face the reality that there's that external events, events in place like Afghanistan, the humility we must have, not about the, just the use of force, but about our own power, that there's only so much influence we can have. And we tried to influence Pakistan and we tried to influence uh, President Karzai and, and they had their own interests. And there's, their own interests often worked against ours. On that note, how are those countries 
uh, uh, reacting to the advancement of the Taliban? Is there fear that that momentum could grow outside of Afghanistan? Well, for the, for Pakistan, this is a victory because the Pakistan intelligence service has been supporting the Taliban for you know, 20 years mm-hmm. and, and then some. And so having an Islamic, Islamic fundamentalist uh, government in, in uh, Afghanistan would be seen in their their minds as a, a firewall against Indian influence. So this is a huge victory for Pakistan. So they'll be very happy with this. Um, of course, one of the things they may not be realizing is that with the United States being entirely out of Af- Afghanistan, Pakistan's leverage over over the West declines, and they may find themselves being as isolated in 1998, you know, now as they were in 1998, when you know the world was pretty upset with Pakistan, both over support for the Taliban and because of its nuclear weapons program. Uh, this is only going to give those folks in the United States who want us to side with India uh, more leverage, as, as as the Pakistanis will be less relevant for the day-to-day business of the United States in, in Afghanistan. What are we going to see in the next few weeks, the next couple of months, the, the short term? Is, are we just going to continue to see advancement, or will it peak and taper? It really depends on on the folks with the guns, uh, you know, in Afghanistan. If they stand and fight, then it can go on for a while. And if they decide not to stand and fight, it can collapse. And we really don't know that. Uh, we've seen that what's happened in other in other parts of Afghanistan. Will the troops that are in 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 and near Kabul fight and stay and 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 stick in the fight? It's hard to say. Uh, we can only watch and, and observe and see how it plays out. Stephen Sadman with us, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, talking about Afghanistan and, of course, the Canadian effort to uh, to close our embassy there now. Stephen, thank you for the time, or at least uh, reduce the staff. Stephen, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.